Today, our lives have been taken over by data and algorithms. We are now used to having our lives taken over by big tech who track our spending and send us specific shopping recommendations. But does this come at a cost? Are we being too cautious about the advent of social media? Or are we really unaware of the effects it has on our daily lives? Today, we are joined by David Jay, the head of mobilization from the Center of Humane Technology, the think tank behind Netflix's hit docudrama, The Social Dilemma. From Amnesty Australia, I am Vince Boulding. And I'm Anita Nair. And this is Anytime Amnesty. Sorry, thank you so much for being here. Yes, I'm really excited to be on. Uh, both excited to be talking to Amnesty and really glad that you're part of the Youth Advisory Board. One of the things that I'm most excited about in this work is the role that youth-led organizing is playing in tech reform. We might just get started um, for us for acknowledging country. I'm meeting of the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and extend my respects to the custodians of the land upon which all of us meet here today and acknowledge that in Australia, sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you so much. And I'm calling um, from the uh, traditional unceded lands of the Ohlone people. Well, and I guess we'll just sort of start off with, if you could just sort of explain what data and algorithms are, because I think we sort of hear these terms, but we don't really understand what they mean. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me, give an example that's that's pretty central to our work say that you are you've got you know a break you just finished some piece of work something you've got to do you've got five extra minutes that you want to fill and so you load up youtube or instagram or tiktok or facebook right and in that moment when you when it pops up a feed of things for you to look at um, an algorithm is is any system that makes decisions. So there are algorithms that decide how to route you when you use a mapping application. There are algorithms that decide credit ratings, who's going to be given credit. There are algorithms that inform things like the sentencing that people receive. And a lot of these algorithms have a, um, a long history of bias and racism baked into them. But the algorithms that we're most concerned with at the Center of Humane Technology are recommendation algorithms. The algorithms that appear, I was just talking about, that sort of decide what content you see when you log into a social media application. And those algorithms are pretty much designed to do one thing, which is show you the content that is most likely to get you to watch, get you to pay attention and keep paying attention. Because the more they can get your attention, the more data they can collect on you, the more ads they can show you. And because of their data, the better they can target those ads. So what the algorithms really want to do is learn as much about you so they can get as effective as possible, first at getting you to pay attention to them, and then at getting you to subtly change your behavior 
in ways that advertisers want you to, by clicking on things, by buying things, by increasingly engaging in other activities that ad advertisers push you. So they, they want to kind of harvest your data to sell subtle changes in your behavior. And an algorithm could be simple. It could be as simple as a set of rules that are coded into a computer, but the algorithms that exist today are very sophisticated machine learning systems, neural networks that take in a bunch of data, output a recommended set of things that are going to capture your attention, and do so in ways that even the people who create them can't fully understand. So when you have those targeted algorithms, now in my group of friends, some, some of them will be like, Finn, you need to watch out because the social media companies are listening to you. And that's how you get the target advertising. Because maybe one day you mention, oh, you want these new pair of pants, then this pops up on your feed. Is that true? Or is it just sort of what you're talking about? And it's just the algorithms that have just sort of picked up on what you're interested in? Great, great question. So as far as we can tell, it's not true. It's really hard to get permissions on a microphone, on a phone. Even if you did, it would use all the battery power to upload it. The fact of the matter is it's not true because that's just not the most efficient way to spy on you. They can learn a huge amount about you by paying attention to what you click on, paying attention to who you're friends with, paying attention to what they click on. So if you and your friend talk about something, then it's not that you said that in that conversation. It's that your friend may have done a search for that thing earlier. And because Facebook on WhatsApp, they know the metadata to know that this is a relationship that's particularly strong for you. So if your friend searched for it, then you're more likely to look for it. So then they're going to show you, even though the only time you ever heard of that thing is in the conversation with your friend. So it's, it's more of a statement about how scary good they are at capturing data about us through our online usage than it is about kind of spying through audio. You mentioned this earlier in terms of humane tech being particularly focused on recommendations. And in the social dilemma, it was sort of picturized as like people sending you notifications, which they know would drag you to your screen. But what is the psychology behind apps and social media getting you to stay or getting you to pay attention to your phone and constantly look at your feed? I, I like to use, I'll, I'll use the example of YouTube, but you could replace any social media application for it, right? As humans, we are wired to like things that are novel and relevant. So if it's a, if it's a thing that is new and like something I already like, we're really want to pay attention to it. The, the um, neurotransmitter dopamine that you may have heard of is very tied to that sort of relevant novelty. So you, you know, let's go back to that five minutes, you open up, say YouTube, and it's going to show you videos optimized by the smartest machine learning systems in the world, by the, some of the largest companies in the world that have hired the smartest people in the world. Like they're building an exponentially better algorithm to release as much dopamine as possible to get you to look at those videos. And you're going to look at that first video and it's going to be, or, you know, that first, that Instagram post or whatever else. And it's going to be pretty good. You're going to get a little bit of a hit. It's going to make you feel relaxed. It's going to make you feel a little bit excited. It's going to make everything else in your life dim a little bit and seem a little bit less relevant. Uh, whatever it is you said you were going to do before you went in and checked social media. And then what's going to happen is the, let's say in the YouTube case, the video is going to end. And there's going to be this three seconds autoplay countdown timer. And in that three seconds, you have to sort of emerge from this 
almost like a stupor where you were you were sitting in this sort of relaxed feel good thing you have to emerge enough to recognize that you want to go do something else before the next video plays because as soon as it plays it's going to start that cycle again it's it's almost like if you woke up in bed in the morning and if you didn't get out of bed in the first three seconds you fell back asleep and so you can imagine how it's really easy to get sucked in for a lot longer than you intend to and if you're talking about something like TikTok, that little three second counter doesn't exist if you're talking about um, a feed where you you pull up from the bottom you have to move your thumb but you just start doing that habitually and the pause doesn't exist and the thing you, you asked about the psychology i'll share one more thing about that is we've learned something about things that release dopamine about things that create that are really good at capturing attention things that are funny things that are joyful things that trigger a sense of moral outrage do really really well and things that are simultaneously unbelievable funny and trigger a sense of moral outrage do incredibly well. So guess what does really well? Conspiracy theories. And the longer you spend in that recommendation stupor, the algorithm will sort of veer, wherever you start, it'll sort of veer you downhill towards something that feels a little bit more like a conspiracy theory. Because the, that's the thing that's going to keep you watching. That's the thing that's going to keep you engaged. And so there's a way in which this desire to optimize for attention inevitably lifts up and amplifies some of the worst stuff on the internet. So going off that, Instagram Australia have said 60% of people on Instagram discover new products and 80% of people on Instagram increase their time watching videos on their platform. So with increased radicalization and conspiracy theories, what is the impact that this will have on younger people taking whether it is new sources or something so innocent, such as looking at a new pair of clothes? We like to think about this as kind of an iceberg. Below the iceberg, you know, underneath the surface, you have this drive to extract as much attention as possible. This business model that is collecting data in order to capture attention and change behavior. And then above the surface, there's a bunch of different harms. And I'm, I'm naming that because kind of conspiracy theories and misinformation are only one of them. Degrading mental health and relationships is another one. If people come to associate that sense of newness, that sense of connection with, with a social media feed rather than with the people around them, that's not creating an environment that a, the human mind thrives in. If you learn to associate your sense of validation, which is social validation is the thing we're really evolved to need, right? If we weren't validated by our community, when, and then we might be kicked out and we might starve when we were evolving. So we, we need that for really good reasons, right? But if we stop associating that need with having healthy relationships with our friends and instead associate it with our like counts on a social media platform with the amount of the, the size of our audience, then that can motivate some behavior that's, that degrades mental health because the things you do to perform for an audience are really different than things you do to be a good friend. And I raise that because for something like Instagram, yes, there's, there's a risk of radicalization and there are entire teams at Facebook that are there to try to like stop the, the radical content from sort of growing on, on a platform that really encourages it. And a lot of times they're insufficient. They're especially insufficient when people aren't speaking English, but that's not the only risk here. 
You mentioned earlier that like it starts with a business model which wants your attention and a lot of that pulls upon data and it personalizes your feed or your news. What is the dangers associated with everyone seeing something different or everyone having a different news feed, especially when it does like Facebook is now a news source for a lot of people. What is the dangers of that being highly personalized? So we've seen conversation for a long time about uh, filter bubbles. And there's, there, I'll, I'll be clear, the, the research on this is, is pretty mixed. There isn't clear academic evidence that feeds lead to, to strong polarization. And a lot of the research just hasn't caught up to the reality that we live in. So I want to I want to be clear about where we where we sit with the academic literature here. But I'll, I'll give one example. Dur- last summer, during the height here in the U.S. the protests against the murder of George Floyd, some of the most engaged content on Facebook was a conspiracy theory about how the protests were being manipulated and faked. You have stories that aren't being vetted by mainstream journalists. They're not going through the kind of rigor that news organizations need to put things through and they are becoming amplified. And then you have news organizations that will then kind of cover the online conspiracy theory as a story. And because because everything's personalized, it's easy for one person to get a version of reality that's really, really divergent from what the person down the street from them is getting. And that allows for this fragmentation around the basic facts of the world we live in. Here in the US, we're seeing, despite a complete lack of evidence, widespread idea that the presidential election was somehow stolen. And that can only persist despite all the evidence against it, because there continues to be a place that people can go and get a version of reality that reinforces that idea. And sort of going off from the capital riots and I guess the rise of QAnon, um, I find it interesting how Facebook private groups in particular have become sort of like a hotbed for conspiracy theories. Is this is a time for Facebook to sort of press the nuclear button, so to speak, and get rid of these private groups? if we have to combat misinformation? So what one thing that has I've noticed compa- compared to even the beginning of 2020 is that Facebook is in crisis response mode a lot more than they used to be. They are sort of u- using their, I, I don't know about nuclear button, but like they're, they're like pulling their emergency levers a lot more. They seem to be because they just, they don't know what to do with the system they built. They're desperate, right? The, the challenge is that the ability, even if you're going to be really extreme about enforcement, it's really easy for these groups to avoid you. If you shut down one word that a QAnon or other conspiracy theory group is using, they just jump to another word. They just appropriate a word that they know a bunch of other people are using. I've seen appropriations of word like, words like patriot. And so you can't, you can't shut down anyone who says the word patriot. You can't shut down all the pre-existing groups that we're using the word patriot for a bunch of other reasons. And so it's easier for these groups to morph to avoid enforcement often than it is for the platforms to understand how to enforce. I guess the question is, who are the people behind the creation of these 
algorithms that sort of entice people into these groups. I, on the show, it mentioned growth hacking. So what if you could just sort of explain this group of people that sort of try and entice you um, into groups and specific recommendations? Yeah, so this is an entire discipline within the tech sector. And it's, it's something, you know, I live near Silicon Valley. It's something that's sort of in the air here is this idea that you want to kind of grow by whatever hacking means you can, whether that's a marketing tool, whether that is a new way of engaging with social media, whether that's a way of tweaking the, the words and the button color on your application, whether that's a way of tweaking your rec- recommendation system. And so what you do is if you're, you're some startup, you get a bunch of money and the people who gave you money say, okay, you need to grow exponentially. You need to, you've got a thousand users. Now you need to have 10,000 users in a month and you need to have a million users in a year. And so how, how are you going to get from a thousand to a million? You need to run a bunch of experiments to see what gets people to pay attention to you. You need to collect a bunch of data, data to understand which tactics work to get people to pay attention to you, data about the people to understand more about them to get them to pay attention to you. And then you need to just iterate those experiments as quickly as possible. There's something called A-B testing, which is how a lot of decisions get made, which is just, we're going to come up with random ideas. We're going to throw them up. We're going to see what is better at extracting people's attention. Then that's the thing we're going to do. So it's not just the recommendation algorithms. Every button color, every font choice, every screen is constantly being tested to figure out what's the thing that extracts the most attention. As you mentioned, there's this large team or there's large companies whose jobs and incentives are to extract individual attention. And then often the conversation is also what can this sole individual do against this large company and large systems which are working against them? And the things we get told is try use social media less or try use incognito mode. But what are things that individuals should be expecting from the companies themselves or the programmers themselves? So I think that's a really good question. We live in this world. So I think that there's a need for individuals to take action. And on our website, humanetech.com, there's a set of recommendations for people who want to take action as individuals. One of them is that if you're taking action as an individual, it's a lot easier if you do it collectively. Our brain has a certain amount of willpower. It's locked in by evolution. We're not about to get more. And we're stacked up against these massively powerful machines that are rapidly getting more and more and more effective. So the the system is not set up for our willpower to win. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up if our willpower doesn't win. It's it's, that's not a failing on our part. You can make it a little bit easier. You can turn notifications off on your phone. You can come up with rituals so that your phone is physically away from you and, and there's just a little bit of friction to be able to engage with these things. It helps a lot if you're not doing it alone. If you can have conversations with other people in your life about your relationships with technology, like a lot of people have relationships with technology that are complicated. They love some part of it. They hate some part of it. And we don't really have a good place to talk about it. If you can find a way to have that conversation, that really helps make change happen. And if you're having that conversation anyway about just the personal experiences you're having, you've got a group and that group has power. And that group has power to begin to push for some of the ways that this change might happen. 
you all are located in Australia, where I know that there are they're in early stages of discussing some regulatory approaches that could be pushed against these companies that are model off some of the things that are happening in the UK that are regulatory approaches to limit a lot of what we've been talking about in this podcast. There are a couple of youth-led movements that are doing really good work um, I, that I alluded to earlier. The, the one I think I'd point you all to is called Log Off Movement. It is founded and led by high school students from all over the world who are putting together resources for the kinds of discussions we're talking about and figuring out how they can play a role in organizing to hold these tech comp companies accountable. And the other thing is that let's remember that the technology that we have was built on college campuses for the most part by college students. Facebook and Google both came out of college campuses. Um, Instagram was not that far out of college camp, out, out of a college campus. And so we should think about how we are building a new generation of tech that operates on, on different assumptions, that has a different model of what it means to be successful than the generation that got us to the problem that we're in. Um, that's part of why we're putting together at the Center of Humane Technology, a course called Foundations of Humane Technology that walks through and challenges a bunch of those assumptions. And that's part of why we put out our podcast, Your Undivided Attention, to help people understand the problem. That's part of why I'll host weekly conversations where hundreds of people will talk about issues on tech reform and then have conversations with one another about the work they're doing and the ways that they want to change it. But there is, at least from where I sit at CHT, especially after the release of The Social Dilemma, there's this emerging ecosystem that wants to do things differently of startups, investors, people just building tech on their own, employees inside of the large companies, regulators, people who are survivors of harm who've become activists. All of us are coming together to sort of push on the system and, and push it in a new way. And as I mentioned earlier, the big companies are increasingly sort of on the defensive. And that means that there's room for something new to emerge. And that I find really exciting. A lot of the time when we hear about social media and we hear about tech, it's quite doom and gloom. And it's quite, oh, you need to beat the system and protect yourself online. But what are the ways that people can actually find connections and people can mobilize online? Oh, and has that also been increased alongside this increased radicalization and increased harms of social media? I would say, yes, it has. And there's ways in which it's not what these platforms are built to do. There's a book called Twitter and Tear Gas. I have it on my shelf behind me that goes into a, a fairly in-depth argument around this and basically says that when, when you create broad, a lot of broadcast, when you make it easy for a bunch of people to all feel a thing in a moment and show up and do something in a moment, that's not really what movements are made of. We, we think of movements as this moment where thousands of people get out in the street or take action together. But movements are a slow build process. Movements are about all of the relationships that need to happen for those people to show up. And social media is really good at taking a message and getting a bunch of people to respond to it quickly. It's not so good at the deep long-term relationship building. It's built to broadcast out, to help as many people as possible build as big an audience as they can, not to help those people sit down and really talk about their lives, 
really find a place to talk about things they don't have a place to talk about and build trust with one another. And it's those conversations, that trust, that I believe sits at the core of most healthy transformative social movements throughout history. So I'd say, yes, there's, there's some credit to be given for the role that, uh, that social media has played in amplifying movements, but it is giving us communities that are toxic as much as it gives us communities that are helpful. And I don't think it's doing the work that movements really need. And on that, you mentioned that social media plays a large role in amplifying certain messages and creating audiences. A recent move that has been made is deplatforming people and deplatforming certain messages. Is this something that social media companies should be doing more of? Or is there a danger that there's bias in who gets deplatformed and what messages don't get the same amount of airtime? So I'll give my personal opinion here. I don't think CHT has a formal statement. And, and my personal opinion is that deplatforming is a really ugly, necessary tool. So in situations like the, the aftermath of the Capital Sixth attacks, and arguably maybe in the time leading up to the, the Capital Sixth attacks, deplatforming as a way to prevent imminent violence becomes necessary. But ideally, you haven't been running a platform that amplifies things that lead to violence in the first place. And deplatforming is... Uh, once you start breaking that as a tool, once you say, hey, deplatforming is just what we're going to do on a regular basis, because on a regular basis, we're, we're concerned about violence happening, that tool quickly can be reappropriated by people in power. And qu quickly, it can get turned on whoever is marginalized. And we've seen that happening. We, we've seen a long history of that already happening in the platforms. If, if deplatforming becomes more embraced as a tool, I have every expectation that it's going to be disproportionately used on people in countries around the world who have less privilege. And so I'm really concerned about leaning on it as a strategy. I think Anita and I in particular, who watched Social Dilemma afterwards, came away thinking, wow, maybe we have become too consumed. Me in particular, like I deleted my Twitter, my TikTok afterwards, because I just realized that, wow, they really take hold of you and your whole psychology has changed. Yeah, definitely. The heuristic that I use personally is, is my engagement with this piece of software furthering a relationship? Is, is it going to help me spend quality time with someone offline or one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's a phone call or something else? And before I even started working at CHT, what I found is that most of the time I spent on social media doesn't pass that test. It doesn't improve any of the time that I spend going deep with people. And even if it feels like it scratches that itch a little bit, it's not giving me what I need. And so I try to limit myself to signal conversations, to things that are going to be with people that I want to go deep with. And I guess for those people, like young people looking out there to sort of get involved apart from the log off movement um where else can they look so i mentioned we host weekly conversations at the center of humane technology if you go to humanetech.com they'll cover different issues in the tech reform space and then afterward everyone breaks into these small tables 
to talk to one another. We always have tables of youth activists and advocates. They're a great place to show up. We also have our own podcast, Your Undivided Attention, with our founder, Tristan Harris. And that is a really in-depth breakdown with some of the smartest thinkers in this field to help understand the issue and to help understand how we might move forward. For anyone who's seen The Social Dilemma, there's another film that hasn't gotten distributed as broadly, but it's really excellent called Coded Bias that I recommend you check out. It deals with facial recognition and it deals with the ways in which algorithms, like we were talking about earlier, encode racism, sexism, and other forms of bias. Uh, and it's really, really critical to understand if for anyone who's interested in these issues. This podcast is produced by Amnesty International Australia, hosted by Vince Boulding and Denise Minow. Edited by Max Lowe and researched by Alec Muir, Alex Kelly and Billy Fett.